As you heard earlier in the program, government restrictions have slowed the rate of coronavirus cases across the country, but experts are warning us to remain vigilant to prevent further outbreaks. As such, many parents have begun the new normal by working from home and isolating with family. This was made easier by the federal government's free childcare scheme announced earlier this month, a move met by widespread approval and community uptake. But not-for-profit Indigenous childcare providers are expressing their frustration over funding arrangements within the sector. Richard Weston is the CEO of the National Secretariat of Aboriginal and Islander Childcare. Richard, thanks for your time this evening. As the CEO for the peak body around Indigenous childcare and protection, what have you seen more broadly happen in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities during this COVID health crisis? Well, I think I've seen a lot of positive action take place, I think, to for communities and Aboriginal services to gear themselves up and deal with the unfolding situation. I think I've been quite inspired by some of the things I've seen and some of the conversations I've had with services but I think overall there's a still a concern for many communities you know with high Aboriginal populations so remote rural and regional communities across the country I guess I have a connection with the Broken Hill area and communities in the in the Murdy Parky region because that's where I worked for a long time so I've been Talking to people out there, and there's concerns about you know the highways that go through those towns, and what tourists and people uh, travelling along those routes might bring into some of the smaller places like Old Kenya or Manindi, and how difficult if a virus does get in there, how difficult it will be to manage things like staying isolated, the overwhelming impact on the health system. There are only small hospitals and health services. If there is an outbreak, how will that be managed and how will people be helped through that? So those have been the things that have caused me to lose a bit of sleep. But I think in spite of that, in spite of those concerns, I think our communities and our Aboriginal-controlled services across the border are doing a pretty remarkable job in you know, staying open and staying as connected to the community as they can. Even though our people, we are a vulnerable group, so all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at greater risk of COVID, but people are still turning up for work in their health services in any early childhood and education and care centres, and it's really important that they have access to the stuff, the protective gear that's going to keep them safe, keep children safe and keep their families safe. Just moving now specifically to the area that you're working in most closely at the moment around childcare and protection, what are your main concerns about the impact of the pandemic on that area? Well, I guess there's two areas where we're sort of really closely trying to uh, stay across, and that's early childhood education and care, so early childhood centres. And they initially were struggling with the funding arrangements, so there were concerns at services that the whole sector might have to close down or that was in imminent collapse. But there was a subsidy rescue package announced on April the 2nd, and so that's been rolling out. We don't know the impact of that, but it seems that services are doing a bit better now financially. But I think where those services are employing Aboriginal people, concern is for their safety and then for the safety of of the children that come into those centres and their families. I think services are really looking for a good, strong and regular supply of things like hand sanitizer and gloves. They're really looking for a responsive 
Department of Education so that when they have concerns about trying to navigate the funding arrangements so that they are able to keep their service open and abide by the directions, that they're able to get that advice quickly. So there are a couple of the concerns and then there's just some of the different models. I mean, it's such a, an ad hoc way the sector is uh, structured and funded. It makes it difficult for some services to access the subsidised support. Some of them aren't standalone services They're inside bigger organisations. So it's been a little bit confusing, I think. So really having a good flow of information has been important, but it's not clear if that's working yet. So we, we've been holding regular teleconferences with that sector the early years sector for the last couple of weeks and really trying to get a handle on how they're coping and feeding that back into the Department of Education. We're just hopeful that as you know the funding becomes available and it rolls out that services are able to continue to operate, keep their doors open and so survive this pandemic period but are also viable beyond that you know, and that kids are getting access to the care they need, they're staying connected to their culture and their community. And for these early childhood services, we need Aboriginal people in those places working, but they have to be kept safe. I just wanted to drill down a little bit into that because I think it's really important just to draw out why it's important that these culturally safe care providers remain open. So I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about your views around that. Look, I think just to give a bit of context that the system they operate in, so this is early childhood, so kindy, preschool, that sort of stuff, and then there's childcare. So there's two elements to these early years services. And the fact that they're there, they support a lot of vulnerable families. So many of our services are supporting families and communities that experience vulnerability. So that might be some kids who are in touch with the out-of-home care system. It might be other things going on in families, you know, social problems and social issues that communities and families are trying to manage. So it's, it's important to have these places where children continue their early education and development, are cared for, they're nurtured, they're surrounded by Aboriginal people, they're surrounded by culture, they're surrounded by all the things that honour and, and respect and support their identity as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So these services are providing a critical element to the safety, wellbeing and development of our children and who are in vulnerable circumstances. Unfortunately, the system that they're funded through, I don't think does enough to recognise the vulnerability of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities. They're funded, it's a user pay system, it's designed for working families so it's designed for the sort of middle class, you know, working mainstream family and that doesn't suit all of our Aboriginal services. And services are funded on the numbers that are attending. Subsidies are managed not necessarily through the service, they're managed through the, the families that are using the service and families don't always turn up. So it's not as straightforward as it seems, but I think these early childhood services, they're supporting early education, supporting early, early years care and they're preparing children for those important steps into primary school education and they have to be valued. I think a lot of our politicians see these early years services as simply as babysitting services and that's so far from what they actually are. The work that SNAKE has been doing has often focused a lot on early intervention to assist families in crisis to avoid having to have children removed and put in out-of-home care. I was just wondering what you see going into the future, given the impact of this pandemic, on how you and the Aboriginal community-controlled sector are going to be responding to early intervention. 
Well, I think to have a proper program and policy response to intervening early requires the government, the decision makers, to really prioritise those early years from pregnancy right through to birth and then those first thousand days and beyond. So you need the right policy settings, you need the right sense that that's a priority from governments, both state and federal. So that's really important. So that's something that SNAKE is working with a whole range of other other services beyond that, just outside of the Aboriginal community control sector, but to get those early years prioritised as a major priority because what happens to children in those early years, as we know, it sets them up. If they have a good experience in those early years, then it's a strong predictor that the rest of their lives is going to be positive, but at the same token, they're at great risk being affected by issues like intergenerational trauma and violence and other factors that go on in families and communities. And we really need to understand those historical impacts of trauma and what are the risks for children and, and their families and communities. And we need to have services, we need to have workforces that are trained up and aware of those impacts and can respond appropriately. And at the moment, we just don't have enough of that knowledge in our workforces around the country. So those are areas I think that there needs to be greater investment in, in training and educating a really powerful Aboriginal workforce. I think we need good programs that are responsive to those complexities of trauma. Trauma, it's not just one issue, it's usually a combination of issues that are impacting on families and, and the children that are living in those families. So we need to have a workforce that can support families. We need families to have an understanding of, of those issues as well so they can be part of that solution. And we need really strong early years sector. We need a greater investment in it. We need to elevate the standing of the people that work with our children and they need a proper qualification. They need proper salaries. This is a whole range of things that have to happen, I think, for that to get better, but it's the organisations like VACA and Quatsip in Queensland and ABSEC in New South Wales that are doing the heavy lifting. They're, you know, they're dealing with these vulnerable families in our community, supporting them. And in terms of the child protection system where they operate, they're having, I think, a greater impact in reunification and bringing children out of that system and back into their families. So I think recognising and seeing that uh, that's a strong case for greater investment and for growing the Aboriginal community control sector, particularly in, in the early years and around child protection and other, other children's issues. Just in a way emphasising how well-placed our own community organisations are at dealing with some of these issues. You mentioned early on about one of the things that has been a good surprise during this pandemic has been how resilient and responsive Aboriginal communities organisations and workers have been. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of the positive community response. Well, I think communities are just getting on with it. I think they've implemented, you know, social distancing measures in many of the early childhood centres. You know, they're meeting parents at the door, they're bringing their children in, they're doing their best to maintain the hygiene regime, so plenty of hand washing and use of gloves and so forth. And really just keeping children safe and continuing on, keeping children connected to culture and, you know, maintaining their pride in their identity. Those are really important things that are continuing to happen. I've seen in communities like places in Wilcannia where the communities have, you know, they've set up their own kind of a COVID emergency response committee or group and they've got 
Aboriginal community leaders in there with services, health services, police, emergency services. So they're starting to coordinate their own efforts. And I just think it just shows us that Aboriginal people have that inherent leadership. It's it's in those smaller communities and rural communities. Our people are able to lead lead on their own solutions. And I think beyond the pandemic, it just speaks to the need to continue to invest in Aboriginal leadership, Aboriginal governance, and certainly a really strong community-controlled sector that is well-resourced and able to respond because we respond better. Our services respond better and do better for our people. Our communities do better if we're in control and determining our own futures and determining our own needs and and determining the solutions to those challenges. That's what works best. That's what all the evidence says. And I think, you know, the Prime Minister made a a big announcement at his Closing the Gap speech that he would work in partnership, he would drive his government to work in an equal partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and it's starting to play out in the Closing the Gap agreement with the Coalition of Peace. But we need to see more of it. It needs to go further and it needs to permeate across all government policy and program areas at the federal level, but also at the state and territory levels. You know, the pandemic has just shown, I think, firstly, how vulnerable communities are, but it's also shown how resilient, strong and adaptable we are to, you know, to a different situations. It's just that I think the pandemic has caused uh, vulnerability through the broader community as well. But people can learn from what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are doing and how they're responding. There's some great messages in that and so much of that good community work goes unseen. So thanks for putting a bit of a spotlight on it so that it can actually be noticed. Just finally tonight, Richard, obviously there's been big changes for everyone. We're all working differently. You're the CEO of a major peak body and you've had to now do that job from home and think about social distancing, a whole range of things. What have you learned about yourself during this time and particularly how are you dealing with the uncertainty of the period that we're going through? Look, I I think I've personally been very concerned so I've been worried I've had a lot of just been worried about getting sick about my family being sick so I've been really in a way you know frightened about what may happen or what could happen and I've you know you're watching news reports particularly what's going on in the United States and the sort of really lack of leadership the poor leadership that they're getting from their president I mean these things, even though that's at a distance, it does impact. It creates an atmosphere, I think. So on a personal level, I've been really concerned and worried. And I just, to be able to have uh, teleconference hookups with our early childhood services and people working in the child protection space, what they're doing and how they're coping and still, you know, being at the front line and out there delivering services, I found that really inspiring. You know, I think... We're coping out. All snake staff are working from home at the moment, so we're using teleconference and televideo link-ups and really adjusting to the novelty of that. So still carrying on our work, but just doing it differently. But we really do, I think, you know, we owe a debt to the people that are, are doing that frontline work. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people out there on the front line, it's a risky situation for them, and I just... You know, hope that people are, you know, do stay safe and that we don't get a major outbreak in one of our smaller regional and remote communities where that have high Aboriginal populations. And yeah, just hope that we all come out uh, safe on the other side and you know we're ready to, you know, move forward and deal with you know whatever the result of the pandemic is. 
Richard, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out. Thanks a lot, Larissa. Richard Weston is the CEO of the National Secretariat of Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, or SNAKE.